episode 212, The Current State of Standardizing Cancer Care with Pathways. Today, I speak with Kathy Loquet from Via Oncology. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Recently, I was talking to someone, a civilian, not in healthcare, and I mentioned something about how patients don't always get a treatment plan based on the best evidence. And he literally recoiled in surprise. I'm going to take that anecdote as at least one data point to suggest that there's a disconnect between what patients think is going on and what is going on relative to the ways that some, not all of course, clinical decisions are made. Alex Akers from Health Catalyst in episode 176 and Clint Phillips from Medici in episode 201 get into this in detail. Today, I speak with Kathy Loquet from Via Oncology, an Elsevier company originally spun out of UPMC. Via Oncology develops and implements clinical pathways in collaboration with its network of cancer centers. I talk with Kathy today about the pros and the gaps inherent in NCCN pathways, which most consider the gold standard of oncology treatment guidelines. And we also talk about the reasons why standardizing cancer care around pathways is so important in these days of value-based care. But there's a bunch of challenges, including the sad reality that it's tough to measure the impact of pathways in the absence of a control group of patients who have been treated without the use of pathways, or said another way, an evidence-based methodology, but for whom, somehow, clinical outcomes have still been meticulously recorded. Oddly, no facilities are stepping up to participate in that clinical trial. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here, Stacey. Conventional wisdom would simply assume that if you say evidence-based care, what you're talking about is, in fact, the methodology uh, or the modality that has the best and the strongest, you know, that evidence-based care would be a synonym for best practice. But that might not be the case. That's correct. And, and things like guidelines are, by their nature, include many different ways to do things, all of which have some evidence, but they haven't been compared head-to-head. So, for example, the NCCN guidelines may have 20 different options for treating a certain kind of cancer, and they all have been studied, and they all have some degree of efficacy, but because each treatment has been studied independent of each other, there's no easy way. NCCN doesn't pick one because they haven't been studied head-to-head. What we attempt to do with pathways is say, well, maybe there are 20 different ways to do this, but can we bring together a group of physicians to really look harder at the evidence and try to ascertain what they think? is the one that is actually the best. And that's a challenge because most of the places in oncology, the different treatments have never been studied head to head. So you are really comparing apples and oranges. You, you have a study over here with one set of patients. You have a different study of a different set of patients and a different endpoint. So it's, it, that's what makes pathways more challenging. And so if I look at the NCCN guidelines and I look up a particular, I'm not exactly sure how the pathways are organized. Is it by... Tumor type? By tumor type. That's a good way to say it. If I'm an oncologist and I have a patient and the patient is presenting with a certain tumor type, then I do a search on that tumor type and I'm going to come up with 20 potential 
treatment options. That's a likely possibility, right? I could see that as a clinician, it would definitely build confidence that a cohort of respected peers has looked into this really thoroughly, like spent right. quality time studying all of these various studies and, and really understanding them and maybe talking to the study authors and like really getting a bead on how they all stack up either against each other or maybe for a different patient type. Do you find that pathways are more embraced by, let's just say, a community oncologist who's doing melanoma in the morning and yeah, yeah. pancreatic cancer in the afternoon? You're absolutely right, Stacey. That I think the physicians that will most strongly advocate for pathways are those physicians that see all all types of cancer. And in the United States, I think that's still probably 85% of the physicians are are what you call a community physician. Um, the academic physicians who specialize in a certain disease probably look to the pathways not so much as a guidepost, but probably more as a vehicle for disseminating information about the, the clinical trials that those academic physicians care about. One of the things that we learned early on at, at UPMC before we turned this into VIA is that we really have to find an angle to sort of win the hearts and minds of the academic physicians. And by layering in open research studies in the pathways, you really are helping to support those academic physicians and get their buy-in that this is something that helps clinical research and, and also the data that we can provide back to those researchers to help them understand where, where the populations of patients are for potential clinical trials in the future, who's accruing, who's not accruing, why are they not accruing. So that clinical research piece is really the hook into those academic physicians. And I could see that that would definitely be a need across the entire healthcare continuum when you consider that it took 17 years for a beta blockers to become the standard of care after a heart attack. And many patients suffered or died as a result of that. Thinking about the speed in which new cancer agents are coming out and new indications for those agents are coming out, it could definitely be something that would be of great benefit to every cancer patient in the country to have access in a way to a center of excellence level expertise. Your point's a good one, which is it's we look at this also, to your point, translating new evidence from those clinical trials. Once they're completed, translating that evidence into practice, we typically our committees meet on a quarterly basis. So if there's you know something new that's groundbreaking, they can meet on an ad hoc basis. Uh, but typically, they're addressing new data, new drugs on a quarterly basis. And we're going to have that updated pathway information into production out for the entire network of, of cancer centers within about 30-day timeline. And a pathway, what does it actually look like? The pathway actually is represented really two different ways. One is in actually a flowchart, you know, classic Visio kind of flowchart. Uh, so a physician can look at the entire pathway for a patient or for a disease in that kind of classical flowchart, branches of a tree kind of thing. But the software that the physicians use on a daily basis actually really walks them through the sort of the decision-making process. And the physician is then being asked questions about that patient that essentially, depending on the answers to those questions, guides them to both things around workup, you know, what tests should we be doing for these patients? And then based on the results of those tests, then when those answers come in, then what's the initial treatment? And then, you know, down the road, if that patient progresses, then the physician will change one of the answers to, you know, now now this patient has progressed. So now what is the next recommended treatment? So it's really algorithmic, but essentially it, it walks them through the thought process. And, and that's really important because I think, you know, for the physicians to have confidence in the pathways, they need to be to sort of see that thought process along the way. If we ask them a bunch of questions 
and then ran off and made a calculation and came back with an answer, I think we'd have a lot of pushback. Based on my understanding, one of the biggest gaps, especially amongst non-center of excellence, more general oncologists, here's one example. Someone's got melanoma. There's, there's some new treatments out for melanoma, but they're only appropriate for people who have a certain genomic profile, you know, like right. have certain biomarkers. But those tests don't get run until the patient winds up showing up at a COE and someone's like, oh, well, you know, there's these new therapies. We should run those biomarker tests. And at that juncture, the disease has progressed. Run that example through the way you would see as ideal. So, you know, same situation happens. You know, patient comes in. It looks like they've just got your garden variety something or other. How are our physicians triggered or prompted to maybe run a test that they wouldn't normally run? You bet. So in the pathway itself, the pathway is recommending these tests where they actually have data, right? So they're, they're not recommending tests that really have not been proven to have any kind of actionable results. So they're, they're being prompted to run tests for the applicable patients. So sometimes early stage disease, you wouldn't necessarily run that test, but late stage disease, you would. So in the pathway, based on that patient's disease, stage of disease and histology, right, there may be a test that's applicable for Squamous, but not non-squamous. So as you get farther into the pathway where that testing is appropriate, what the pathway says is, here's the test we're recommending. Here's the evidence for why we're recommending that test. Did you test? And if so, what were the results? And the physicians have to answer that question. They can't skip it. So the physician either has to say, yep, I tested and here was the result. And then based on that result, then the pathway will stratify whether you're going to chemotherapy, whether you're going to a target agent. Or the physician can say, no, I didn't test, and they can say why they didn't test. There wasn't enough tissue or whatever. So we actually collect the data around who didn't test, and that's one of the measures that we provide back to leadership at each customer. And so we can help those cancer centers identify where there are gaps that they need to close. There are different patients who are desirous of different outcomes. Some patients might want higher quality of life. Some patients might want a longer life at all costs. Some patients are older and sicker. Some patients are younger and stronger. How do the pathways account for a patient's choice? It does it really two levels. One is that the committees themselves, these, these physician committees that we bring together on a quarterly basis, the physician committees will often carve out what we call other patient scenarios. So we may have a recommendation for one therapy, but the committees say, you know what, that's great, but my 80-year-old patients, that's just not going to work for them. It's, it's too toxic. It's too, you know, too aggressive. So they will essentially create another branch on the pathway that says if poor performance status or if elderly or if, you know, so they'll, they'll create these other scenarios that they see happening on a common basis. So the committees themselves can create these additional branches for those what I would call sort of commonly occurring patient scenarios that really require something other than what the committee thinks is the, you know, the primary best. So that's one way. The second way is that we always anticipate that the physicians are going to go off pathway, you know, 10, 20, 30% of the time. So if it's not a commonly occurring scenario that, that, that made it onto the, the pathway itself, we would encourage the physician to just go off pathway. And when they go off pathway, they, they would document the, in the little pick list of reasons for going off pathway, they would say patient choice, or they would say whatever the pick list applicable reason would and then they would go off pathway and then give the patient what they think is, is appropriate for that patient's choice, you know, for, for what their desired outcomes are. 
What is the advantage of standardizing, for example, across an institution or nationally, especially when the data might be a little equivocal between one pathway versus another? I think the advantage is, I'll start with the national level. I think the, the advantage that, that we speak to in the sales process of going with the national pathways are one, that if you want insurers to, over time, get out of the prior authorization business and let the health systems really do the right thing themselves, you need to be able to point to something that has a higher level of credibility than just, this is what we do here in Portland. There's also just the element of, it is much more expensive to maintain your own local pathways. It's, it's more expensive. They have the extra work and extra cost locally of having physicians have to come together in sort of local committees to determine what then is the pathway for their cancer center. So it's a, it's a costly and, and high effort endeavor to maintain customized pathways. So I, I would say those are sort of the benefits of, of going with a national pathway. Your second question then was, okay, but within a cancer center, what's the benefit of having everybody doing the same thing? And I think that one really speaks to this idea that you want to have a consistency in your quality. You want to make sure that all of your physicians are, I always use this example, if a, if a patient with a, a very specific type of cancer presented to 10 different physicians within your cancer center, should that patient get the same recommendation from all 10 or should each physician create different recommendations? And I think most people would agree that if it's the same presentation, the exact same patient, everybody should be on the same page in terms of how to treat that patient. And the only way to do that is to get everybody to come together and say, we're going to all follow the same thing. So I think it's sort of at a, at a very gut level, this idea that we should all be approaching the same you know, cases the same way. But I think there's, a, there's sort of a, a broader, which is that you want to be able to predict the cost of your care. You want to be able to make sure that your care is either the highest outcomes or, you know, lowest toxicities or lowest cost, especially as you're beginning to take more risk. And so a lot of the practices that are adopting pathways are doing it in part because they are seeing the onus coming to them to manage costs, manage quality. They're being measured, they're being graded, they're being paid on it. And so the ability, you know, if you're going to begin assuming risk and being held to, you know, to reported quality measures, you need to have a way to make sure that everyone in your cancer center is really adhering to not just evidence-based care, but standardized evidence-based care. And is there a patient safety angle in there as well? There is, and, and especially in oncology, where if, if you've ever looked at what a, a chemotherapy regimen looks like, they're very complex, right? They're multiple drugs, typically. They're given on some combination of weight and height, you know, so the, the dosing is always different for each patient. They're given on different schedules. You know, sometimes, you know, you may have a two-drug combination that could be given weekly. You have a, the same two-drug combination that could be given every other week, every third week, every fourth week. And to the extent that you have all this complexity and all this variability, the likelihood that mistakes get made in terms of dosing, in terms of forgetting to schedule the patient who needs to come in every week because she thought it was every three week, being able to teach patients if you're giving drugs in many, many different sort of variations then your ability to really consistently teach the patients about the toxicities and when to expect them. The, you know, the toxicities are going to be different if you're giving the same drug weekly versus if you're giving it once a month. So I think just this, you know, the, the whole concept of, of standardization, whether it be the automotive industry or any other industry, says that standardization leads to fewer errors and better outcomes. And I think the same holds true for healthcare and especially holds true for oncology, where the delivery of that care is so complex. What are the barriers to standardizing? I don't know that 
if I did a poll across America right now and I asked how many cancer centers are actively and aggressively using uh, pathways, that there would be a room full of hands raised. So obviously there must be some barriers here. What are they? The barriers, I think, are several fold. One is just every health system is in some different state of evolution in the whole volume to value curve. And so it, it, those that are still earlier on the volume to value shift are probably still thinking of pathways as something down the road. So they're just the return on investment, the urgency of doing it is not quite there yet because they're still very much fee for service. It really kind of depends on where each market is in terms of that shift. I think there's also there is political capital that you have to expend to get your physicians to use pathways. You know, I jokingly say no individual oncologist gets up in the morning and says, hey, give me another piece of software to use, have it kind of tell me how to do my job and have my leadership be able to evaluate whether I'm actually adhering it to it. <laughs> so, you know, the, the individual physicians before they implement pathways are probably not altogether very thrilled about it. And rightly so. Each physician believes they're doing a great job. And so this idea that, yeah, you may be doing a great job, but I want you all doing the same job. That doesn't always sit too well. So you really need strong leadership that says, this is why this is so important to the future success of our institution. And this is why it's important, really, at the end of the day, for our patients collectively. One of the things that you just said really struck me, because it's a common refrain, not just in oncology, that if you ask a physician how they're doing, the inevitable answer will be, I'm doing great. And one of the reasons is because there's no data, there's no feedback loop, and there's no comparator. So I could think that my performance is, is very spectacular until it's compared to somebody else and they're getting better results. And I think there's a reason why people become doctors. And one of them is to get the best possible outcomes for their patients. And if pathways are and standardizing care and collecting that data and producing the feedback loop, the challenge, Stacy, though, is that even with pathways, you suggested is still a goal, but we're not there yet. We don't have everything we need to be able to demonstrate that patients are having better outcomes. And, and there are a multitude of reasons for that. But one of the biggest ones is that we don't have a control arm of what happens when you don't have pathways implemented. And so that's been one of our interesting challenges is, is can you, you really have to almost work with an insurer to be able to have a control arm of a practice that doesn't have pathways. And that insurer needs to be able to measure clinical data that it typically doesn't get on a claim. And so that's been one of the challenges, I think, in pathways in general is, is being able to definitively show that pathways lead to better outcomes. I think everybody intuitively believes it or, or we wouldn't have all the adoption that we have, but it's still that sort of elusive thing that hopefully over time we'll be able to get to. But there's still those that say, I don't know that it leads to better outcomes and I think I'm doing a perfectly good job myself. So that's the challenge. Then straighten me out here. I'm definitely cottoning on to the notion that the impetus behind the pathway adoption has been the shift to value-based care, that if this was still an FFS world, that nobody would be using pathways. I mean, that that's the takeaway that I had from what you just said. But if value-based care is intimately connected with either cost reduction or increased quality, then either people are letting their intuitions make business decisions or there's some data to suggest that you can get the same quality at a lower cost and produce healthcare value. Does that not correlate to outcomes? It does and it doesn't. The, the <laughs> challenge is proving that. The challenge is proving that because if let's just even just take the cost side of it, we'll put the quality side aside for a moment. 
even to prove that pathways are reducing costs, you need a control arm. And you need that control arm to say what happened to costs where you didn't have pathways. Does that, does that make sense? Because the challenge in cancer, if there were no new data coming out, and no new drugs, you could just simply compare this year to last year. And you could say, great, XYZ Cancer Center spent less on their oncology drugs this year than last year. But that's not the case. So in oncology, you have constantly not just new drugs, but existing drugs that get new indications. And so the spend in oncology is going to go up no matter what. And so the way to prove that you have the pathways have meant, made a dent in costs would be to have a control arm of an institution that did not implement pathways. But at the same time was tracking outcomes, which I can see <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> might right. be. And one of the other incredible ironies of this is that pathways may actually not reduce costs. And what I mean by that is the very thing you and I talked about earlier, which is if, if you are accelerating new therapies, you know, translation, you know, from the bench to the bedside, you actually may have practices that use pathways adopting expensive new technology, but, but that, is, that is, you know, beneficial for patients. You may have those practices adopting faster than other practices who then may spend less money because they didn't adopt the more expensive therapies. It's one of the reasons that we don't make saving money a primary goal of our pathways. If you look at our website, you don't see that because it's not, you know, saving money is not the primary goal of pathways. It's really ensuring standardization to best evidence-based care. And so the number one goal is to improve patient outcomes. We believe, and I think everybody believes that a, a secondary benefit is that you are optimizing the cost of care. But until drug prices come down or until technology stops the the relentless, you know, which is a good thing, but it's but it's it's part of the challenge. I just finished reading the book Unaccountable by Marty McCary. And one of the things that he says that maybe this is important for the, the cancer centers that actually are tracking outcomes and doing it in a methodical way. Patients don't understand which cancer centers have better outcomes than others. So in the absence of having quality transparency and patients being able to identify which cancer centers are actually producing the best results, then it really puts the good ones at a disadvantage. And I can't tell you how many times I speak with someone with cancer who reads the billboard on the highway about the robotic surgery, you know, that's available somewhere or sees the big, we're a cancer center in the area and is swayed by that marketing, whereas, you know, there's a great place down the street that's NCI designated that is doing the right thing and has pathways and has exceptional tumor boards. So it comes down to a marketing struggle as opposed to giving the patients the data that is necessary for a patient to make a good choice. You're absolutely right. I want a soapbox. I think it is definitely something where when we're talking about transparency and we're talking about transparency in a lot of different ways, you know, one of them is, is obviously price transparency, but another one really needs to be quality transparency as well so that patients can make life or death decisions using data. I think that quality measures today are good. I think to your point, they're not really what patients need to know. And the, the challenge is that what patients really want to know is, you know, am I going to live longer? Am I going to feel better? And I think especially the live longer, that's a hard one because even the big cancer registries struggle to be able to convincingly demonstrate who has better outcomes because there are so many variables that are unaccounted for and there's such a lag in reporting. And so 
I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a noble goal to say, you know, there needs to be better transparency in, in outcomes in cancer. But I think it's part of the challenge is just, you know, it's such a complex field and the ability to actually accurately account for all those variables and track it in a timely manner. We're, we're just not there yet. We just don't have the systems and the data yet to be able to get there. You know, maybe maybe in another five years. But today, even if even if the government mandated this, there would still be enormous struggles. And would, would the results be credible? And obviously, this will be a continuum that probably will never have a goalpost that isn't changing. So I feel like there has been a strides that have been made. I don't know if you would agree over the past five years and at least being able to define or recognize that a problem exists. I mean, sometimes that's the hardest part. Right. How do clinical trials fit into pathways? I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on. It's a common refrain that patients and, and even providers don't know what clinical trials a patient might be eligible for. How can pathways be used to assist in connecting the right patients with the right trials? The approach that we've taken from the beginning has been the idea that for each cancer center, one of our standard parts of our product offering is that we will work closely with them on an ongoing basis to basically place any clinical trial that they have open to accrual. We place that trial within the pathways. And so when you get down, sort of using my tree analogy that this is a big decision tree, when you get down to the end of each branch of that decision tree for, let's say, breast cancer, the clinical trial or trials that are open at that institution are actually what shows up first to the physician before the pathway recommendation. So we're promoting the trial as even ahead of the, the standardized treatment. We're giving the physician the ability to use a button in the portal to actually um, send an email, a secure email to a research coordinator to say, hey, I would like this patient screened for this trial. And if the physician doesn't accrue the patient to the trial, they have to answer the question, why didn't you accrue that patient to that trial? Only then are they taken then down to the actual pathway recommendation. So, and all of this then generates data that we're able to give back to the institution, to the principal investigator for that trial, to be able to show, here's where your trial is accruing, here's where you had patients that were potentially eligible, but they didn't get accrued, and here's why, and here's where that's happening. So, we're not only promoting the trials, we're actually giving a substantial amount of information back to each cancer center to show them how their trial portfolio is performing, and where they have gaps. Where did we have a lot of patients that you didn't have a clinical trial open? So you can identify where the gaps, you know, in your portfolio so that you can, you know, uh, if you're, you know, if you're the thoracic uh, specialist, you can go out and start trying to, you know, find some more trials for your uh, lung cancer patients. So that's really the approach we've taken. Um, it's, it's a heavy lift because clinical trials open and close all the time. We do have interfaces built so that we can automate some of that opening and closing, but it's a heavy lift. Kathy, where can people find out more about VIA Oncology if they are interested in learning more? Our website is actually viaoncology.com and there's a, there's a contact us page on the very last tab. So they can they certainly reach out to us that way. Kathy Loke, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value Podcast today. Thank you, Stacey. It was a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is 
automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.